Philemon is 25 verses. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible. It doesn't have a chapter, so hopefully nobody's confused by where in Philemon we are. We'll go ahead and read these first 25 verses and then jump into what I think hopefully will be helpful three thoughts on it. Starting at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Well, we're going to be taking a bird's eye view of these 25 verses. As I prepared this week, I realized very easily there could be 25 sermons, there could be three sermons, there could be nine sermons. There's so much in this little letter. But as it is written for one individual to be read in light of the church of God, I think there is a helpful practice for us to examine it in its entirety at a time like this. So Philemon was presumably a prominent, wealthy, and leading member of the church at Colossae. As a part of the church would have met in his house, Paul seemed to intend that the letter be read in the company of the church, apparently by Onesimus or maybe even by Philemon himself. Paul didn't establish the church at Colossae. Rather, it seems that he would have met and discipled Philemon sometime in Ephesus at an earlier point. Paul's writing around the same time he wrote the book of Philippians and some of the other prison epistles, again, most likely in Rome, 
approximately 62 AD. As he says in verse 9, Paul is an old man at the time of his writing. The gospel which Paul has written to us and explained to us in Philippians and throughout all of his letters, of course. The gospel is about reconciliation with God and reconciliation with each other is an implication of that same gospel. Some today would like to preach a gospel that centers around unity across social, economic, and ethnic barriers. Indeed, the gospel tears down these barriers, of course, but only as an implication of what Christ has done at the cross not as the main mission. Holding my little sick six-month-old yesterday, trying to get her to sleep through this terrible cold was a really difficult thing to bear. I decided to utilize my preaching skills to put her to sleep as I have implemented with both of my daughters to great success. I told my six-month-old that Christ died to make her whole, but the bigger issue in her life is her sin problem. How hard it is for a parent to endure the sickness of a child, even a small cold such as this was. What great compassion then the Lord must have on us as his children, lost in sin. Reconciliation as it relates to each other, and as we will see in this letter, is an extension of the grace that God has extended to us, that we might renew relationships with others in light of the grace that's been given to us and our relationship with God through Christ. So, you'll see in your outline, this first point being the reality of reconciliation, and that there are three sub-points I'd like to look at there. So, the reality of reconciliation we see in verses 1 through 7, which is Paul's introduction and his description of Philemon. And everything that Paul speaks of regarding Philemon in this section is a result of grace. It's a result of what Christ has done for Philemon at the cross in his resurrection, making Philemon a brand new person. You see that in, starting in verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus for all the saints. This has all happened because of Christ in Philemon's life. It sets a scene for him to act out his faith in Christ in response to what Paul will appeal to in verse 9. So, we look at the fact that reconciliation with God creates a few things. First of all, it creates partnership in mission. Paul begins by granting a very respectable title of fellow worker to Philemon, or partner in the gospel. Paul and Philemon must have had some previous experience together in ministry. When we're born again into the family of God through Christ, we are called to the fellowship of the Great Commission immediately. We are part of the mission of God on earth. We grow in that, of course, right? We grow in our understanding of evangelism, of discipleship, of living that Christian life. But there is no waiting period in which we sit as inactive observers. We are meant to be active participants in the Great Commission. Fellowship, being a, quote, self-sacrificing conformity to a shared cause, to steal D.A. Carson's definition once again, Christian partnership sits on the foundation of Christ's atoning sacrifice, that brought the church together in the first place. Fellowship is an implication of the gospel as well. If we understand that our partnership together is based only on the work of Christ, we can see that reconciliation is possible through the great power of the work of Christ. Our culture, on the other hand, is quick to identify differences with each other and slow to embrace points of unity. 
Contrarily, the church is called to be active towards growth in unity in Christ, regardless of the various reasons we may find ourselves dividing. Fellowship and reconciliation as an implication of the gospel can be a powerful tool to point to the reality of the gospel in our city as people watch what we're doing. Anglican Bishop, whoops, is, yeah, I don't have that. <laughs> Darn it. Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle in the 1800s wrote, Unity without gospel is a worthless unity. It is a unity of hell. That's pretty harsh language, isn't it? I wonder if you would agree with J.C. Ryle on this. One more time. Unity without gospel is a worthless unity. It is a unity of hell. We must be boldly clear that our unity is not based on anything other than Jesus Christ. And thus offer an open invitation to all around us that people are loved, accepted, and forgiven of all sin in the Christ in whom we are unified. It is in this fact that we are truly in fellowship and find great motivation to reconcile any differences that we might have. We proclaim the gospel of which 1700s pastor and leader of the Second Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, said, we contribute nothing to but the sin that made it necessary. It's the gospel that is a call to be cleansed of all the wrong in our hearts and to be reconciled to God. We proclaim a Christ who was crucified horrendously for our sin to show the perfect justice of God and his wrath against anything that would stand against his holiness and separate him from his creation. We proclaim that the same Christ who was raised and is now lifted up and drawing all kinds of people from all kinds of places to himself in inexpressible joy and satisfaction in his great love. As the church, we have a glorious goal in fellowship to call others to the household of faith. Christ-glorifying ministry is seen here. In verse 5, we see that Philemon is known as one who loves Christ and loves Christ's people. Paul uses love to help support his case that he's going to build for Onesimus. He expresses his love for Philemon, he commends the love of Philemon, and he will appeal to him for love to Onesimus. He is confident that Philemon will oblige out of love. Philemon would be in danger of hypocrisy if he had not received Onesimus back in forgiveness and reconciliation consistent with this love and faith that he's known for. This act of receiving Onesimus would be consistent with Paul's prayer in verse 6. If you look at that again, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This Christ-glorifying ministry would be as effective for the sake of Christ and those around him to understand Christ even better. This was not simply a matter of church discipline going on here. When he calls Philemon to receive Onesimus, he's calling him to express the gospel to those around him. With the return of Onesimus, Philemon's faith and love that has refreshed the saints would face a new and public test. It's possible that other slave owners were perhaps watching and hoping for swift justice to be taken out on the runaway slave. Maybe they expected Philemon would beat Onesimus within an inch of his life in order that other slaves would understand what running away would bring them. Perhaps other listeners, waiting with bated breath, prayed and hoped that Philemon would act in kindness, addressing the greater news of Onesimus' new life in Christ and receive him appropriately as Paul had instructed. 
The reading of the letter before the church set the stage for a great opportunity to see the gospel in action. For better or worse, Philemon's faith would be shared with those around him. For our idea of partnership is founded in the gospel, then our ministry will serve to, as Paul wrote here, become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Verse 6 is not speaking explicitly to evangelism of unbelievers, as we may think at first glance, but rather to the working out of our faith in others, particularly around the church. The Lord has sovereignly directed an opportunity to encourage and teach the church through Onesimus. Reconciliation with each other, an implication of the gospel, would serve as an illustration of the gospel to encourage the church. Sharing of the faith that is effective for the full knowledge of every good thing in us for the sake of Christ, or Christ-glorifying ministry, means that in the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, we are consistent in front of the world, among the church, and in the quiet of our hearts. It means that the overall purpose of anything we do as a Christian is not for personal gain or anything other than the glorification of Jesus Christ among us. If you look at the beginning of Jesus' prayer in John 17, 1, in the garden before he went to the cross, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The preamble to the greatest work the world has ever seen at the cross of Christ was Christ requesting glory that he might bring his Father glory. And so he has. In prioritizing sharing your faith with non-believers, don't undersell your need to share your faith with those in the church around you. In recent weeks, trials some of you are enduring through have served as a platform for me to be heavily encouraged. I believe that the Lord has increased my faith by being around you. In moments of discouragement or in the seemingly overwhelming sense of pressure from those trials, hold fast to your confession of faith in Christ. We are watching, and it matters greatly to us that you succeed so that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Lastly, in this section, joy, comfort, love, and refreshment. In verses 1 through 7, Paul has, in a way, been complimenting Philemon into his impending exhortation in verses 8 through 20 but he's also been setting him up to obey the appeal to come. Paul is basically saying, all this is true of you, my brother, my fellow worker. God has wrought a remarkable change in your life and used you exceptionally to the benefit of the saints. In gospel partnership, there is joy and comfort from the love of Christ in the saints towards each other. Say that again in a different way. Part of how we understand the love of Christ when we see it displayed through each other. There's a comfort in the, in the world that is largely consumed with self-seeking motives and desires. Brothers and sisters in Christ ought to find in the fellowship of the saints great joy, comfort, and refreshing from each other. We gather to exhort one another, to encourage one another, and to commit to unified Christ-glorifying ministry together. If those things are true, it ought to shape our mindset of approaching moments and opportunities for fellowship with each other. 
We ought to have anticipation for gathering on Sunday morning, even if only to see that certain person that you know is going to encourage you to follow after Christ. We have to have anticipation in, in leading up to D group time or prayer time or whatever it might be where you connect with another Christian. There ought to be a significant connection there. It doesn't mean that every time you see another Christian, you have to open up your Bible and have a 45-minute Bible study. It just simply means that building relationships with each other in the gospel would mean that fellowship will come even at a moment's notice, even when you come over to help somebody with their home improvement project or whatever it might be. One of my great hopes is that we as the church would reject the mindset of lone wolf Christianity. Just about every other religion in the world, you can do by yourself. But I'm fully convinced that if the church is available to you, you can't live Christianity by yourself. There are certainly Christians who are living in persecuted places and are alone, and that's, that's, they're, they're forced into this lifestyle of, of not having the fellowship of other believers. And, and that's not what I'm talking about here, but where we are here, we have such great access to each other. I mean, even just to send a text message to one another, to encourage another person. I mean, you don't even have to come up with something fancy to say. Just take literally anything out of here. Well, maybe not literally, but take something from here and send it in a text message to somebody else. And you can't tell me that that won't be immensely encouraging. Or, even if it's not for some reason encouraging to the other person, it builds a holy lifestyle of how you view other saints in the Lord. Let us not go out Sunday afternoons into our own corners of the world as though we function alone in our Christian life. Join a D group. Have other church members over to your house for supper. Take your kids to the park together. Call on each other when you need help with something around the house. Do life together and see the opportunity to glorify Christ in the midst of it. Your favorite German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote in this book, Life Together, that a life together under the word will stay healthy only when it does not form itself into a movement an order, or a society, but instead understands itself as being part of the one, holy, universal, Christian church, sharing through its deeds and suffering in the hardships and struggles and promise of the whole church. It's a beautiful picture for us to follow as we consider what it means to be a part of the church. It doesn't mean that we just show up and see each other on Sunday mornings. It doesn't mean that we, we, we limit it in any way, but that we look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, unified in fellowship, a shared mission. That we are all here to, to live a life to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. In light of that, let us pursue a healthy church life, working together in it, knowing we are a small part of a much larger family in Christ. Secondly, the extension of reconciliation to others in verses 8 through 20. Under this second point, I would remind you of the three characters we're most concerned with here. And they're probably obvious to you, but you can match them with the three subpoints in the second section. Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul. Reconciliation with God through the gospel of Christ has a necessary implication of seeking reconciliation with each other. To continue Jesus' prayer in John 17, 11, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. If you want a simple goal of what unity in the church might need to look like, or might ought to look like, look at Jesus' prayer. 
The unity that he's talking about here, that he desires for us, is the unity that the Father and the Son share. There's no greater unity than that. I specifically say that there's an implication of seeking reconciliation with others because we know that reconciliation is a two-way street. Paul's words in Romans 12, 18 become helpful for us here. He writes, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In sharing our faith with non-believers, we are not responsible for their response, but rather leave that to the work of the Holy Spirit. So, in seeking reconciliation even within the church, we must trust the Spirit to provide wisdom, to know that what we have done, rather, that we have done what we ought to do to seek reconciliation, and trust the Holy Spirit to work in others who may not immediately respond the way we'd like them to. Paul makes it abundantly clear from verse 8 back to Philemon that what he is going to instruct Philemon in is not going to come as a command, though it bears the same weight, but rather as an appeal. Look at verse 8 again. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. For love's sake, he explains, hearkening us back to verse 5, speaking of Philemon as one who is known for loving Christ and loving Christ's people. Paul says here that what is necessary and the reason Philemon needs to obey this appeal is already evident in him through the grace of Christ. You are filled with the love of Christ and the love for Christ and love for his people. I'm only calling you to extend that to somebody that you didn't expect to, Paul says. In verse 14, Paul will further explain that as he puts the ball in his court regarding Onesimus, his hope is that Philemon would not act out of compulsion, but out of his own accord. Your translation may say out of his own free will, his own desire. That his will would line with gospel truth and he would act according to it. So, reconciliation with each other brings, first, a widening of our view of the family of God. So this is what Philemon will learn, would learn through this letter. Paul speaks of what has happened in the boy's life and that Philemon must receive him in a certain way. He calls Onesimus his child, whose father he became in his imprisonment. Onesimus is a part of the family of God now. Paul plays off of the boy's name in verse 11. He used to be Akriston, the Greek says to you, but now he is Eukriston. Onesimus means profitable or useful. And Paul expresses that previously, because of his running away, he was useless to Philemon, but has now become even more useful to him than, as, than if he had stayed. And so it is with every one of us who are in Christ. We who were once useless due to our sin and separation from God have found in Christ a power to become Eucriston, useful. To Philemon, the family of God has widened to include one that he perhaps never thought would be included. Yet we see throughout the pages of Scripture and throughout the history of the church that it is folks like Onesimus whom God loves to draw to his son. Secondly, we'll see an opportunity to seek righteousness with each other. And this is Onesimus' role in this story. Onesimus somehow became connected to Paul while Paul was imprisoned in Rome and believed the gospel through Paul's preaching. After some time, presumably not too long, but long enough that Paul calls him useful to himself in ministry, 
the time came for him to return to his master Philemon. He needed to go and make things right, not merely as a matter of law, but as a matter of conscience before God. In light of the gospel, in light of the fact that Onesimus had been made right with God, he saw it necessary to make himself right with Philemon. Onesimus bears real fruit of new life in Christ in returning to Philemon. It would be easy to imagine he would have rather stayed with Paul in prison than returned to his master, who may be waiting to bring great punishment down on him. No doubt he was encouraged by Paul's letter and confident to re-enter Philemon's home based on Paul's confidence that you see in verse 21. But could he be sure that Philemon would truly listen to Paul? The fact is, is that that didn't matter as much to him as doing what was right before God. Onesimus glorifies Christ in his following Paul's prompting him to reconcile with Philemon. How encouraging it must have been to be in that gathering that day, to see the boy come in so moved by the Holy Spirit, to look over to the door and see Onesimus come in and look over at Philemon and then back over at Onesimus and then back at Philemon. And then Onesimus comes in and he says, before you say anything, Paul sent me with a letter. Listen to what Paul has to say. This has been fantastic. You know, Paul, Paul's ministry was filled with, th- with miraculous healings and raising people from the dead and these incredible, fantastic, supernatural things. But I imagine from what we see in Paul's writing that it's moments like this that warmed his heart and encouraged the saints even more than those miraculous seeming things. Lastly, there's a sharing of joy and burdens. And this is Paul. Paul's role in this section of the appeal. Coming to Paul, we see that the perspective of the believer outside of the reconciliation is one of coaching both sides to press forward in it. In verse 15, Paul points us to the sovereignty of God in our lives. Look at verse 15 for a moment. He says, This perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. This phrase, this perhaps is why he was parted from you, is is appealing to the fact that God, in his sovereignty, allowed Onesimus to escape Philemon and directed his path straight to Paul. Onesimus escaping the bondage of slavery, which isn't exactly as we consider it to be um, from our own American history of slavery. It's a little bit different, but it still was ownership of a human being to do whatever you'd ask them to do. Onesimus would have escaped with a great sense of freedom, a great sense of excitement to see what is it that the world has to offer him. And he runs into Paul the Apostle. And here's the gospel and goes straight back to Philemon. It's amazing. Well, Paul's the one who's coaching Onesimus in this regard and coaching um, Philemon to receive him rightly. How amazing it must have been for Philemon to receive one who acted as, as an enemy against him, but now to receive him, according to Paul, not only as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, but rather as a brother in Christ. Paul is appealing to Philemon that there is great joy for you to be had in receiving this person that you looked at before as useless and as an enemy, as somebody who has worked against you. Now God has done an amazing thing and brought him back to you, not just to restore what was before, but to give something greater, to bring him as a brother in Christ. And he proved himself that way in verse 16 more than a bondservant, a beloved brother. 
Paul says, especially to be me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Paul experienced in his, his ministry with Onesimus the reality of reconciliation to God in the young boy's life, presumably, um, to such a great extent that he was confident that Onesimus, in taking Paul's letter, would not change his mind and turn around halfway through the journey back to Philemon and say, I don't think it's worth it. I'm going to go back to my original plan of doing whatever I wanted to do. Rather, Paul was confident through the work that he had seen in Philemon by the Holy Spirit or rather, I'm sorry, the work of the Holy Spirit in Onesimus, that sending Onesimus back to Philemon, he would most certainly arrive there and, and be met with the confidence that Paul has in Philemon as well to receive him. Look at verses 17 through 19. Here, Paul appeals to his relationship with Philemon. He says, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If Philemon wanted financial restitution, Paul offered to be the one to pay. But he puts an important disclaimer. Again, in verse 17, if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. Well, how is it that Paul would be received by Philemon? Well, he changes the subject slightly here for a second, but he returns to it after 18. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. This is the relationship between Paul and Philemon. What is it that you owe me, Philemon, Paul says? I shared the gospel with you. I discipled you. Would you know Christ had he not used me to preach the, God, the good news to you? Can you hold a debt against another brother who cannot repay you when you have had your debt before God paid in full by Christ? when you had no hope of repaying either? Of course, there's an assumption in here that Philemon is not going to charge Paul with, you know, charge Paul, the prisoner here, right, with anything that perhaps might have been stolen by Onesimus or to consider up adding up um, lost work time because of Onesimus' absence. There's an assumption here that, that what Paul is saying, Philemon will receive as, yes, there's, there's nothing that, that I can charge to Onesimus um, or charge to Paul in this, in this case. And then Paul says in verse 20, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. Refresh my heart by accepting this poor boy as a brother in Christ. Show us the love and forgiveness of Christ. Paul is willing to bear the burden of Onesimus and seeks to share in the joy of Philemon in this reconciliation. And this is the role of this, this Paul who is outside of this conflict between the two men. So what is there that we could do to help another along in reconciling with someone in the household of faith? Well, if we look to the means of grace, if we look to the word, if we look to our access to God in prayer, and if we look to our ability to fellowship with one another, if you're able to observe someone needs to reconcile with another person, have confidence to, in love, share the truth with them, exhort them, receive this person. Receive them, and maybe you, you're the Paul person in, in a certain case where you might need to say, receive them the way you would receive me. Look, we have good fellowship. Extend that fellowship to that person. There's ample application for us to see out of this book. This was an important enough matter that Paul wrote a letter and the Holy Spirit carried Paul along in writing it and the Holy Spirit preserved it for all of time in the Bible. 
It says something of the importance of our bearing with one another as the occasion rises and working with them in reconciliation and unity. Beloved, see disagreements and challenges less as a roadblock in life and ministry and rather trust in God's sovereign hand over all things and see that he desires to work it out for your good and for his glory. That may mean that you don't just simply forget about a relationship that requires reconciliation. It may mean that you call somebody up and say, we had a disagreement 5, 10, 15 years ago. and I want to make things right. I want to know that we are okay. I want to know that we are able to receive each other in fellowship in Christ. On top of this, the importance of dealing with sin is on the table. That powerful passage in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Consider this in Philemon's life. If Philemon did not forgive Onesimus, what would that say of his forgiveness from the heavenly Father? If we do not help each other along in reconciliation and forgiveness with each other, what does that say of what we think about forgiveness? What does it say about what we think about the word of God? The weight of heaven and hell is found in Philemon's situation. Will he receive Philemon and glorify Christ by forgiving out of a heart that has been forgiven so much? Or will he hold on to an unforgiving grudge and call into question whether he has in fact been forgiven in Christ? He who has been forgiven much loves much and forgives much as well. Last section here, we find a confidence in the reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus by the Holy Spirit in verses 21 through 25. We cannot rely on ourselves for assurance that we will walk in a way worthy of our calling. We need the Holy Spirit to grant the grace of Christ to our spirit, as Paul puts it in the end of this letter. We worship by the Spirit and we walk by the Spirit. God does not leave us to scramble through our disagreements, but is in our midst and ready and able to work in a way that exalts Christ and brings for us joy, comfort, and refreshing. So, reconciliation by the power of the Holy Spirit results in, firstly, an assurance in forgiving rightly. Look at verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul does not expect that Philemon will merely act in a forgiving way before the church at his house as, as a way of sort of saving face in front of everyone to sort of say, yeah, Onesimus, you're fine, but, you know, get back to work. Paul is confident that Philemon will, in fact, do even more than he has been asked to do. He already set out the right expectations based on the life of Philemon in verses 4 through 7. He expects that Philemon will take action in accord with what the Lord has already worked in him previously towards the other saints in Christ, that he will treat Onesimus in the same way. By the Spirit, Philemon will welcome Onesimus and forgive him of all that stood between them. He would think of, speak to, and work alongside Onesimus as he would work alongside Paul or speak to Paul or think of Paul or any other of the household of God. Forgiving rightly means that we love as we would other believers who have not wronged us. Secondly, there's an accountability to see it through, available to us by the Spirit. 
Paul tells him in verse 22 here to get a room ready. We see this as he says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. So there's a level of this where he's saying, I know you'd really like for me to come and visit, and I'm trusting that the Spirit's going to make that happen. He's going to get me out of prison, and I'll be able to come and see you. It's not just a simple visit here. In light of everything that he's telling Philemon, he's basically saying, prepare a room ready, because I'm confident that my Roman imprisonment is going to end, just as he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 25. His goal with Philemon will not simply be to visit him, but also to see with his own eyes whether or not Philemon has in fact reconciled with Onesimus. Accountability is a scary thing. And in this very cordial line by Paul, we see, hey, I'd really love to come visit you. Also going to be checking up on you. Nobody likes to be checked up on. I I worked an office job in front of a computer for 12 years, something like that. And anytime anyone was standing behind me, I just couldn't do anything. I could not work. Could not stand the idea of somebody watching what I'm doing, looking over my shoulder. But in fact, in our fellowship with each other in the gospel, what we ought to find is accountability is a means of grace to us that we would follow through with what we're committed to do for the glory of Christ. So Paul will come hoping to see the refreshing that he spoke of in verse 20. Refresh my heart. Let me come and visit you and Onesimus and be excited to see both of you and what the Lord's doing in your midst. Forgiveness and reconciliation do not end at the close of a handshake. This letter does not amount to simply Paul saying, or rather Philemon saying, wow, that was a really good letter. You know, come over here, shake my hand, Onesimus, and get back to work. Rather, in some cases, there's a longer time than we may like to have so that we know that our relationship has been restored and is honoring to Christ. So, Paul offers the help of accountability to see it through. And accountability may be something we need in our own reconciliation with others. We may need to ask someone to pray with and for us and maybe even check up on us in how we're dealing with a certain um, disagreement or, or whatever it might be. Letter C says that what we also receive in the work of the Holy Spirit to bring reconciliation is amity or friendship to encourage future faithfulness. Paul's never won in any of his letters to hypocritically call the church to something he would not do. In the final greeting, we see Paul mention a few names. Look at verse 23. This section is, is easily skip, skippable in our minds, perhaps, as you might read it. I even kind of wanted to skip it as I was looking at this message. But, of course, something really important jumps out. Reading 23 through 25, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. There may be more stories to um, the names that are listed here, but there's one that should jump up to us, and that is, in fact, Mark. You'll remember that Mark was a traveling companion of Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 12. And that Mark was the point of a sharp disagreement in Acts 15, resulting in a separation of Paul and Barnabas. Well, we learn from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, that towards the end of Paul's life, Paul had, had sincerely reconciled with Mark, as he calls him someone that is useful for ministry. Even though Mark had abandoned them in Pamphylia, Paul says that he is useful or Eucristos, for ministry. If Paul could practice this kind of reconciliation with Mark, 
Philemon must with Onesimus, and we must with each other. The Lord has richly blessed us with his word, with access to him in prayer, and the fellowship of other believers. So let us be unified together, recognizing the overlap of the mission of the church and our interpersonal challenges regarding forgiveness and reconciliation. Lean on the Spirit. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Encourage the church around you by being faithful to Him through the effective sharing of your faith. Show us all we have in Christ and glorify Christ in all of it.